Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. You are listening to a Kol Nidre sermon by Rabbi Adam Kligfeld. Many of you are not going to like this sermon. It's a good start, right? And yet I've determined that even if a small portion of you are paying attention by the end, and a small portion of that portion might make even a small change in your lives as a result, I might consider it to be one of the most important sermons I've ever given. And maybe, just maybe, the sermon you least want to hear is the one that you most need to. But let me take a step back and give some context. A cow was brutally slaughtered at my wedding on the dance floor as part of the shtick, not a real one. But the symbol was clear. Two friends dressed up in a cow costume and the third came as the shochet and shechted him right in the middle of the opening hora. That's how meat-centric and steak-frenzied and fleshic my friend and co- my friend cohort and I were at the time. We would emphasize the word basar, which means meat or flesh, every time it appeared in Birkat Hamazon. Basar. We saved as students for steak dinners and nearly named it a national holiday when Le Marais, a high-end French kosher steakhouse, opened in New York City in 1995. I was there opening night. (laughs) On our honeymoon, Javi and I stayed at a vegan bed and breakfast in Ireland for Shabbat because there was no kosher option. Not surprising. And then we lampooned the aggressive propaganda literature that was left for visitors to read in their bedrooms, helping them to convince themselves and convince their parents to give up eating meat. And the proprietors of this bed and breakfast told us how thrilled they were to learn that they were hosting a religious Jewish couple for Shabbat. Why? Because to them, it meant that one less chicken would be eaten that weekend. (laughs) We thought they were nuts. I grew up as a traditional Ashkenazi, New York-based Jew, and I absolutely loved the Jewish diet. My grandmother's gribbonus, which I think my pancreas is still processing 35 years later, (laughs) fleshic kreplach to break the fast, pastrami sandwiches on Visitor's Day at Ramah, and endless meals of scrambled eggs and blintzes and cream cheese on a toasted white bagel and pounds and pounds of lox. I even managed a kosher deli when I was in college. So a significant percentage of my campus calories accumulated in the form of bagel dogs and turkey subs and meat knishes. You get the picture. This pattern continued into my 30s and then changed abruptly. 
As part of research I was doing for a sermon, I learned things about meat production that were hard to unlearn. And I essentially stopped eating red meat on the dime. And I've barely gone back to it and barely missed it since. A few years later, already living here in L.A., I learned unsavory things about chicken farming and slaughter, particularly and sadly within the kosher slaughterhouses in the States and in Israel. So I gave up eating poultry. At the time, this was a personal and private decision. It was made primarily for ethical reasons. While Jewish values and the mitzvah of tsar balei chaim, which prohibits us from causing pain to animals, should impact, and they do impact, our consumption of food, I never pounded the pulpit on this topic. I kept it quiet. I answered questions when people asked me, but I chose not to preach about it. Because it's hard to talk about this topic without coming off as preachy. In fact, try as I might to avoid it, I know I run the risk of doing that right now. Now, the ethics of food and its impact on the animals that we choose to eat still move me very much. But the ideas that I want to share this morning have much less to do with the lives and the welfare of cows and chickens and much more to do with the lives and welfare of all of you. Please hear this sermon as a love letter coming from the mouth and the heart of one who really cares for all of you deeply and wants to share healthy life with you for as long as possible. Within the last year, based on abundant research and reading I've done, I have moved almost entirely to a whole food, plant-based diet. My 25-year-old self is either laughing or crying right now while munching on some steak tartare. Mostly, I now eat and thoroughly enjoy some combination of vegetables and fruit and whole grains and beans and nuts and very, very little added oil. I don't call it vegan. As one of the writers who has inspired me said it, French fries are vegan. And French fries are pretty toxic. Over the last months, as I thought of all the topics to address to my congregation on this day, I considered and then rejected discussing geopolitics, or a year two of the pandemic and trying to repackage last year's message of hope and grit into a new format this year, or what Jewish values might say about the state of the American democracy, or how our micro-decisions to live comfortable lives are cumulatively, cumulatively making macro impacts on our society and our climate and contributing to a more dangerous world, or any, other, any number of worthy topics ripped from the headlines. But I kept coming back to this topic, to the possibility that I just might, and I know it's a might, I might nudge some of the people I care most about in the world to nudge their cuisine in the direction that I'm convinced has the greatest chance of keeping illness at bay and leading to a long and healthy life. In my research, I came across this data point. Did you know that the simple act 
of replacing hot dogs and french fries at meals with lentil patties and kale salad will reduce by 90% what little joy you have left in your life. I actually binge on lentils and kale, and I'm a very, very happy man. My core text so far, amongst others, has a doozy of a title, No Subtlety. It was written by Dr. Michael Greger, and it is called, aptly, How Not to Die. I'm not going to waste words in this sermon on the details, but I do commend to you the more than 550 pages of science and research and recipes as well as a tremendous documentary called Forks Over Knives. But the central theory, backed up by thousands of studies, and perhaps most significantly the China study from the 1970s, is that the most reliable way to keep most preventable diseases at bay and to live a life of health and longevity is to eat nearly exclusively a whole food, plant-based diet. Among the tens of thousands of data points, one compelling one is the drop in negative health markers in the blood and concomitant mortality when small populations throughout history have been forced, either by war or by famine, not because of their own choice, to take on this approach to food for a short period of time. And similarly compelling and distressing is what happens when previously healthy societies and cultures whose local cuisine had been for centuries mostly plant-based, end up moving towards what some refer to also aptly as SAD, S-A-D, the standard American diet. When cultures make that shift, high heart disease skyrockets, as do diabetes, and because everything in the body is connected, and every system essentially relies on good vascularization, the detritus deposited in the, in the blood via, via SAD, the SAD American diet, wallops a person's chances of avoiding not only heart attack and hypertension and stroke, but also cancers and dementia and other debilitating diseases. Now, nothing is a guarantee, of course, we know that, There are whole food, plant-based eaters who contract awful diseases randomly and die young. And there are, as we all know, individuals around us who smoke and eat steak and fried foods towards and beyond their century mark. But the big data does not lie. And for now, I am convinced. And for now, I am committed Now, at this point, even if you are intrigued, you might be wondering, why do I need to hear this from my rabbi? What's his relationship to my food and my health and on Yom Kippur when I'm so hungry? (laughs) Good questions. Thank you for asking them. I have two primary answers. One of them is blunt and one of them is more subtle. Here's the blunt one. You and I are in a trusting, covenanted relationship. Once you invited me in to be your rabbi and let me into your life, and I thank you for that, you invited me all the way in. And so I'm implicated in your life trajectory. You have asked for my presence, and you will again, 
and for my support when you get sick. I will sit at your hospital bedside and pray with you as you or loved ones confront illness. I sanctify the births in your family and I wish the babies a long and healthy life. And I try to bring some solace at deaths. I know it is strange to say it out loud, but let's be frank because it's true. When many of you die, I will be there to bring you honor and to bring your family some solace. So why ought I not share what I consider to be critical insight that might keep at bay some of the very illnesses for which you might ask me to add your name to a Misha Berach list and which might delay by a considerable amount of time the day on which I am to come to you and recite the final vidui prayer as life ebbs away. I know it's blunt, but those are the contours of the sacred bond that we share, and in some ways deep in what I consider rabbinic work to be, which is focusing on the entirety of the life of my community members. I cannot not share this with you. And the second reason, in what way are Jews in relationship with their rabbis about food? In lots of ways. This just raises the stakes and maybe restores Jewish eating back to a meaningfulness that for many, including myself, I will admit, has been elusive. Many of you email me with questions like this. My dairy fork fell into my meat pot as I was cooking. What do I do, Rabbi? If I now eat kidney oat on Pesach, can I buy milled flaxseed before the holiday without a heksher and use it? Yes, by the way. And all such questions are in the normative category of what a Jew asked the rabbi. We call this category kashrut. And don't get me wrong, I love those questions. I appreciate and celebrate how conscientious so many of you are about the specific and holy details of kashrut, of intentional and observant Jewish eating. But as I think of what Judaism has to offer the world and to us about eating, whether or not the triangle K symbol is legitimate, and how many times broccoli heads must be washed before we can be sure they are free of bugs, that just represents pennies on the dollar. There is more at the core to Jewish eating. We all know the word kosher, but do we know its true meaning? The root in Hebrew is kaf shin resh, and the best way to translate it is fit, as in fitness. To work out in modern Hebrew is asot kosher, Essentially, to exercise in Hebrew is to do the kosher thing for you and for your body. So whatever your current cuisine happens to be, I hope you'll join me in at least considering the fact that it's a religious paradox at best and a religious travesty at worst. That you can eat food stamped and determined to be kasher, fit, when what it might do to your body is the antithesis of it. I'm a proud, observant, religious Jew. And I struggle with what kashrut has become sometimes in the modern, industrialized, commercialized world. Rabbi Lucas and I used to muse about this all the time. We'd say that we observed kashrut, of course. And we also rude and hated the label-hunting 
and the low-grade kashrut mafia of Pico Boulevard and the mistreatment of animals and of workers that are sadly integral to the modern world of keeping kosher. I do fear that we have lost a holy foundation of what was once biblical and rabbinic kashrut. And I am not advocating, God forbid, for jettisoning kashrut, but I'm all for reclaiming it so that the menu matches the meaning. Replacing, or at least elevating, an obsessive search for microscopic microscopic contaminants or going for only certain rabbis' approval should be a passionate return to the essential idea that kashrut should be a Jew's way of eating that which most venerates God and God's loan, loan to us of this fragile and vulnerable body. So yeah, I think that as a rabbi, I ought to have something to say about that. Nor am I the first nor anywhere close to being the most important rabbi or Jew to claim that consuming mostly plants should be the highest form of eating. Perhaps you've heard of Rav Cook, the luminous first Ashkenazi chief rabbi of pre-state Palestine. Rav Cook famously valorized exercise and maintaining one's physical health as a prime religious obligation, a mitzvah in and of itself. And a compilation of his writing that was entitled A Vision of Vegetarianism and Peace It depicts a progression guided by Torah law towards a vegetarian society. Consider this powerful quote from Rav Cook: The power of the soul is very much dependent on the state of the body and its health. We have been preoccupied by spirituality and we have forgotten the sanctity of the body. We have forgotten that our flesh is holy, no less than our souls. Now how could the author of those words or anyone inspired by them, not struggle at least a little bit when seeing an OU symbol on frozen chicken nuggets or a bag of beastly. His words about refraining from meat were as clear as his words from exhorting physical health. He wrote that, quote, in the future ideal state, the Messianic era, just as in the initial period, people and animals will not eat flesh. And he believed that even if the temple were to be rebuilt, only inanimate produce grown from the earth could and would be offered as a sacrifice. Rob Cook wove together the ethical, the physical, and the spiritual, and he envisioned a Jewish community in the not-so-distant future celebrating Shabbat and festivals and daily sustenance without taking the life of any animal nor harming one's own life with anything other than the most wholesome of foods. But Jewish wisdom on this topic is older, way older than the 19th and 20th century Rav Cook. The classic rabbinic interpretation of the story of the flood of Noah that we'll read in a few weeks is that the Torah's giving humanity the right to eat meat after the flood was a begrudging concession. The Garden of Eden was the Garden of Vegan. Because the generation that warranted the flood was so wicked with their violence and their bloodshed, God basically says here, if you absolutely must take out your bloodthirsty instincts, don't do it on one another. At least do it on the animals. And in that, in the most humane way, 
That's classic rabbinic interpretation. We are thousands of years of organic growth of Jewish cuisine and habits since then. But if you really want to be honest about the true original Jewish threshold for permitting eating meat, is if you really think that's the only way you will be kept from committing murder. If that's the way to satisfy and sublimate your desire to destroy a creation of God, then eat the hamburger. But if you think you can avoid that violence without it, then you should do so. And while he wasn't a rabbi, Einstein knew a little bit about science. And consider this quote. He wrote, Nothing will benefit human health and increase the chances of survival on earth as much as the evolution to a vegetarian diet. And pre-modern societies knew something about the link between our food choices and our health. I came across the following ancient Egyptian proverb. One-fourth of our food keeps us alive. And three-fourths of our food keeps our physicians alive. I want our doctors and our physicians to live and thrive and be well. And I know, I'm convinced, that our doctors want nothing more than for us to need them less. Now, a few years ago, I might have thought it was a fool's errand to imagine a large swath of people that I know or the society around us giving up the eating of meat, whether for ethical or personal health reasons. But we now live in a different age. We live in the age of the impossible burger and beyond sausages. And stories like this one told to me by a Beth Am member who said that now on taco nights at his family's home, since they started adding the impossible meat recently, the kids never choose the ones with beef. They've just lost the taste for it. And the same member told me just this last week, and this is a sign either that the apocalypse, apocalypse is coming or the messianic era is nigh. In Europe, they will soon unveil at European McDonald's the McPlant, a fully vegan Big Mac, both the beef and the cheese produced with vegetables. Now, it might take a while to turn Texas around. (laughs) But the proprietors of Cousin's Cottage in Ireland, that vegan bed and breakfast from our honeymoon, are probably thrilled at humanity's progress in the last two decades. They don't even need to host religious Jews at their place in order for fewer chickens to die on Shabbat. There are evocative appeals to plant-based eating that speak to one's altruism. Choose the vegetable and save the animal, suffering in death and in life. Choose the fruit and save the environment. Both of these exhortations are very much in line with Jewish values, and I support them. And here in Southern California, as we suffer through yet another drought, I'll share with you just one of thousands of worthy statistics Water usage data suggests that if every American were to avoid meat just one day each week, we as a nation would save the same amount of water equivalent to the entire flow of the Colorado River every year. More than enough water to alleviate this region's shortages forever. Altruism and sparing animals and healing our warming and desiccated planet are worthy things. 
I support them. But so is taking care of self. And it's that appeal that I spotlight most loudly today. Today, Yom Kippur is a great day of vitality, believe it or not. We're claiming another year of life on this rotating orb. But it's also a way, a day, it's also a day of death in some ways. Because it's avoiding it if we lean into the liturgy with our penitence and our devotions. And also evocatively and eerily a day of imitating our deaths. Many of us are robed in simple white, as we will be for all eternity. We don't eat or drink. We transcend our bodily needs as if we are released souls. We spend 25 hours in an elaborate, ritualized dress rehearsal for the very moment we hope that we've actually staved off for at least one more year as a result of what we've achieved throughout this ritual. Life is in our grasp today. And death is on our mind today. Can this be a moment that we make a commitment to inscribe ourselves in the book of life for this year and hopefully many more to come? Transformations, whether they're individual or societal, are rare and they take time. And as I mentioned, my own food evolution is decades in the making. And I'm no prophet. I don't know the future. And I can't say with certainty what I will or will not eat 3, 5, 25 years from now. Much as it would make me happy and proud, I expect no radical shifts in the food choices in all of your lives or in the array of what we serve here at Beth Am and at Pressman Academy. But I will celebrate it if you're still listening at the end of the sermon. And I'll celebrate some change among some of you some of the time. As you make your Jewish commitments to God and to others, but also to yourself today, and especially if you are struggling with what I'm sharing, I encourage you to digest these ideas less in the realm of what you will hold back from, because that's harder, and more towards what you will add to your consumption of food. To paraphrase the great Michael Pollan, eat real food, mostly plants. It may be kashrut at its loftiest. So read the book. Again, it's called How Not to Die. And its title seems even more poignant in this moment as we are about to commemorate our loved ones' lives. Talk to your physician. Give this idea a chance. And if you're not prepared to go whole hog on this, perhaps my words shared with great love, can help you think through the fact that eating healthily is a Jewish value. It's a Jewish obligation. And doing that one thing better this year may be the most important Jewish decision you make today for God, for the planet, for the animals, for yourself, for life. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, 
go to tbala.org.